0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified Program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network,
3: Good afternoon and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today as co host is Associate Producer Taylor Lanzett. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Jenna. We've got a a great show today. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I know, because we're interviewing Mark Bittman. Um, Mark, for those of you who don't know, has done nearly everything food related. Uh, He's a food system journalist and a cookbook author. His weekly column, which I'm sure you all have read uh, in the New York Times, was The Minimalist, which he did for 13 years. And he is the author of the ubiquitous cookbook, How to Cook Everything, which is on every home Shelf. Yeah, it's on my bedside table, too. I know. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. Okay. After leaving the New York Times, he became the chief innovation officer at Purple Carrot, which is the it's a plant-based meal service, a uh, meal delivery service company. And most recently, he transitioned to academia, joining the faculty at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Mark, you have a new cookbook out, uh, How to Bake Everything, which seems like a departure from your previous cookbooks because baking is more of an exact science, right? And I find the beauty of your other cookbooks to be that you, you kind of teach the technique and then provide a lot of variations. Um, so what was the process like for creating this new book? And um, why did you decide to do a book on baking?
4: Um, you know. For me, baking is a subset of cooking, and this notion that baking is science and cooking is art is, um, I wouldn't say it's nonsense, but its <laughs> it, it, it makes things much more complicated than they need to be, and um, while it's true that there's more measuring in baking than there needs to be in most cooking, yeah. it's equally true you can improvise in baking, you can learn how to do things and then take liberties, and it's also true that... You know, a lot of cooking is quite exact, also. So, uh, as I said, baking is a subset of cooking. It is a somewhat more technical subset, but like everything else I do, um, I'm going to look at the simplest side of things, the most accessible side of things, and try to make it even simpler and more accessible. So, to me, it was a different kind of challenge, but it was not radically different. It's not as if I decided suddenly to write a book about auto repair. It it seems akin to me to the other. The other How to Cook Everything books, and it's very much in the same spirit.
3: Um, I think that, you know, for me... Baking sounds like a departure because I'm always worried about measuring stuff. But it, it um, I'm definitely happy to yeah. know that you can kind of like learn a few basics and then go you, from
5: there. Even in the cooking community, right, there's such a divide between the pastry folks and otherwise. Um, so it's also, you know, prevalent when you see it on a menu you're like, oh, this person specializes in this and this person specializes in that. Um, Well,
4: it's true there's no soup chef in a kitchen, (laughs) and there is a pastry chef, but everybody's working towards the same goal. Everybody's using similar ingredients. Everybody's measuring to greater or lesser extent. Yeah. I mean, of course, you can make an argument that baking is completely different, but I think it's a specious argument. I don't think it works.
3: Um, as someone who still publishes cookbooks, obviously, do you think that the rise of food blogs, social media, and just kind of overall, like the internet, has changed your approach to writing cookbooks specifically?
4: Well, it hasn't really changed my First of all, I've been writing cookbooks for 25 years. When the internet still existed.
6: Longer.
4: So <laughs> it's hard to know whether the changes, you know, during that period of time we went from not quite pre-internet, but almost pre-internet to now. Yeah, It's hard to know what changes are a result of the web and what changes are the result of just my evolution and the evolution of the cookbook world and cooking in general. So it's hard to separate it out. But really, um, the process for me is the same. The books have changed. I like to think they've changed for the better. Um, And I don't sit around saying, uh, I mean, w- I could stop writing entirely and say, "Look, there are fifty bazillion recipes online. Why does anyone need A more look? from me? Um, I've written alone twenty thousand. Who needs anything else from me? And yet, the books feel different for me. They feel like an advancement. They feel di- they feel." Um, like I'm moving forward, and people keep yeah. buying them. So yeah. <laughs> um, it's clear there's something to offer. It's also been true um, as the book industry in general has died and then seemingly come back to life during that whole period, cookbooks continue continued to sell pretty well. So yeah. um, there is something people like about having a book, a physical paper book in their hands. And, um, you know, I think that's true of novels and nonfiction as well as instructional books like cookbooks. Someone said to me the other day, print is the new vinyl, which I thought was (laughs) hilarious. But, you know, to some extent... It's true. It it is true. It hasn't died. Um, It's never going to be as strong as it was because obviously we do have e-books and so many of us do so much reading online or um, on... Tablets or phones or whatever, but books books live so. yeah,
3: I'm one of those people who um, I collect cookbooks uh, and I think that Taylor and I were talking earlier, and we said that you know how to how to cook everything your that was your first book, right, your first cookbook.
4: No, my first cookbook was actually Fish.
3: Oh, Fish. Okay, got that wrong. Um, we're going to edit that out, Mark.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, you, I mean, if, you know, it's really not fair, because if you're allowed to be wrong, then I should be allowed to be wrong also. Okay. I mean, if, I'm, Deal. if we have to edit out everything we say that we don't like, then, you know, anyway, you do what you
3: want. Fair, just no, fair point. Um, but still, How to Cook Everything is, um, you know, re- required reading, bedside reading. It's on Every kind of every cook's home cook shelf certainly, mm-hmm. and um, still the gold standard. Actually, was the one of the first cookbooks I ever received, and the person who bought it for me is a big time food editor, you know, FCI grad, whatever. And he he was like, "This is the only cookbook you need."
4: <laughs> well, that's really, yeah, yeah, that's really sweet. I don't think of it as bedtime reading myself, but I do remember. <laughs> um, When I was in my 20s, I certainly did read cookbooks in bed, and I know people still like to do that. So, great. If Addict Cook Everything is in that mix, I'm ecstatic. It
5: is. Uh, Mark, it came as a surprise to many when, in 2015, you announced that you would be leaving the Times for a leadership role with Purple Carrot, the plant-based meal delivery service. And, you know, there are so many innovative food and ag startups making meaningful changes to our food system and we're wondering why you decided on a meal delivery company.
3: Sorry, well, we should have you know, prefaced that by sorry Mark by saying we're going to we shift it we're going to shift gears. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> um I might take issue with the notion that there are so many food startups making meaningful changes in food and egg, but that is what I thought mm-hmm. um, 2 years ago when I started thinking about joining one um i would say um it was not for me so Mm uh and in retrospect i think uh this might be the first time i've said this publicly but in retrospect i think i was looking for a reason to leave the times um i was really tired i'd worked really really hard for depending on how you count, but any number of years. And um, I, it wasn't that I thought that Purple Carrot was going to be not work, and it certainly was work, but I just needed out, I needed a different kind of challenge than the challenge of weekly deadlines, mm-hmm. weekly writing deadlines. And and starting in the 80s and continuing until a couple of years ago, I almost never didn't have, I o- almost had, almost never did a week pass where I didn't have a deadline, and some weeks I had three or four. So, wow. um,
3: it's a huge amount of pressure, and just to kind of come up with that much content, yeah. right? Deadlines well, especially aside.
4: Especially once I started writing opinion, because it's, yeah. you know to come up with a recipe every week. as I did in the minimalist, you know, I, I didn't want to repeat myself. I wanted the recipes to be good. I wanted it range all over the place. Okay, I did that, but that's not the same as saying something out loud that's a strong opinion and wanting to be right Um, and the opinion column was uh, much more stressful than anything I'd done before much more rewarding also but as I said I was just I was just worn out
5: Yeah, I'm just curious and sort of you know and pushing back against the notion that there are a lot of meaningful ag startups out there Um, what was it then about purple carrot that you were like this is this is the next move for me it is it you know hits all this other criteria um that well, other
4: ones I think are not the notion that you could help people um learn how to cook without meat yeah uh, was valuable to me and, and it and, and distinguished purple, distinguished and distinguishes purple carrot from other meal kit companies but frankly i wanted to um Uh, I wanted to make sure that Purple Carrot was different in many other ways, ranging from sourcing to the way that we treated our workers to being pioneers in packaging Mm -hmm. um, and so on. And that may well yet happen, but it wasn't happening fast enough for me when I was there.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's those are questions that a lot of, um, you know, meal service delivery companies specifically are still kind of trying to figure out.
4: I don't know whether they're trying to figure them out or not. For all I know, they don't care. But oh. <laughs> they certainly haven't. They certainly haven't solved haven't. those issues.
3: Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to – we're kind of going in reverse order of your career in terms of some of the questions. <laughs> no, we're <laughs> bouncing around. It's fine. We're bouncing around. Um, and and I want to shift and, and talk a little bit about the, uh, the column that you – that you wrote, right, and you mentioned that you started to write more opinion pieces over the years about the food system, um, like behind the food that you were making, right, the policies behind the food. Um, and in a lot of ways, like, you know, your column kind of followed the arch of of how food dipped into the political discourse over the past 10 years. Was this a natural progression for you? And do you think that all people, if they're interested in food, starts to wonder about topics like where their food comes from over time?
4: Well, let me give very, very short answers first to that really terrific question, which would be a long conversation if we pursued it logically. And then we'll expand on them as much or as little as you like. Uh Um, Was it a logical progression? For me, yes, and I can talk about how that worked. Is it a logical progression for everyone? Well, it's not, but it would be great if it were, and it's a logical progression for many people. So Mm -hmm. um, obviously you want a little more than that. So for Uh, you, yeah, we'll start with you. uh, Well, we'll start with me. I lived in Connecticut. I raised my kids there, um, and I saw Connecticut go from, uh, you know, a a state that was a funny mix of suburban and really, really, really rural um, and included a still a fair number of farms when i first moved there in the seventies to a place that was increasingly suburban and more forested um, and less and less agricultural and um, as that was happening i saw and anyone else who was looking could also see that food in the suit the quality of food in supermarkets was declining and it was less varied and and equally true the quality of american the quality of the american diet was declining as well mm-hmm. from writing about food from cooking all the time from trying to buy food locally which you know is not a it, buying food locally by the way is not a new thing everyone yeah. who cooks has always tried to buy local food anyone who really cooks because it's it's fresher. better it's clearly inferior it's clearly superior yeah. so um So from doing all of those things, it was clear to me that there was less local food. The food that there was wasn't as good. People were um, having increasing diet problems and uh, nutritional advice wasn't super helpful. Yeah. Um, And then came the sort of notion for me around the year 2000 came the notion that There wasn't enough meat on the planet for everybody to eat as much as they Mm -hmm. wanted to, nor was there ever going to be. It was a logical impossibility in that, in the long run, we were going to all be eating more plants. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when I started to work on how to cook everything vegetarian, which I started in about 98, 99, and it was published, I don't know when. Two thousand six <laughs> or two thousand seven, I don't know.
3: Yeah, um sometime.
4: <laughs> sometime. Well I'm just trying to put this stuff in context. Yeah, yeah.
3: And uh,
4: also in ninety nine or two thousand Eric Schlosser published Fast Food Nation, which yeah. which is you know, not there are earlier books critiquing American food culture, but for our generations
5: that was, right
4: now, Schlosser's yeah. was the first and it remains among the best and, and it totally. was really an eye opener and um yeah i put all that in sort of the bitman blender i started writing a little bit more about um aspects of food other than cooking and then in 2007 i decided i would really jump into this with both feet and i started writing policy pieces for the weekend review section which is now sunday review and um in the times and uh, before long, I was trying to convince the Times to let me write a weekly opinion column, um, and before long, I did. So that's the progression. Um, if you cook, I think you're going to see. You will if you have cooked for the last thirty years, as I have forty years. You will have seen those changes. If you haven't, but you cook now or you continue to cook, you're going to wish that. You're going to wish that food was different. than it is if you're a principled person. So um, the more people that see this, the better, obviously, and the more people that see the interconnectivity or the web-like structure of society of which food is a part, that food affects the environment and labor and health and public health and um, climate change and so on, and all of those things affect food and all of those things affect each other and that you can't really talk about can't talk seriously about fixing one aspect of the system without talking seriously about fixing the other aspect. I think food is a great gateway, a great entry drug into the, into understanding the world, but you have to think things through and you have to look at them and try to yeah. see things as they really are. Once you do that, I think, I'm not saying it's obvious, but but a thinking person
3: can figure these things out. Um. It- Yes. Uh, do you, I mean, so, okay, so, th- I mean, that makes sense for, for me, right? Like, you kind of start to put the pieces together um, eventually by kind of, like, maybe reading cookbooks or to cooks talk about how local produce is better, and then that kind of starts sparking other questions. But, I mean, do you think for, like, a just an everyday, you know, I don't know, like a ordinary, an ordinary person who just cooks a few times a week, do you... Do you think that's a natural progression, and and like how do you encourage that um, in general, right? In all well,
4: people, I, you know, I'm an ordinary person who yeah. cooks a few times a week, so I think the answer is yes. And how you encourage it is, uh, I mean, for me, I encourage it by trying to include some political awareness in my columns and also, I mean, in my cookbooks. But also, I went to work writing those columns, so that yeah. was my. Um,
3: your foray. your are to
4: be my goal. Yeah.
5: <laughs> I mean, I agree that you are an average person and you can speak <laughs> for yourself on this one, but even like this weekend, there was a Times article that came out that showed that like the number two item purchased by most U.S. households is still like sugary beverages and um, sodas. unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, There's it really, really is. Something. Yeah. And the number two, and this is a, you know, and. What's for, number one? I,
3: p- yeah. oh. And f- right, for I, you- I definitely contribute to that. By the <laughs> way,
5: <laughs> for all of us, we're thinking this is a given at this point, right? Like the conversation on drinking soda and sugary sweetened beverages is, is over, um, and I don't well, even it is know on the, the, the east last coast point. and the west yeah. coast,
3: right? I think that that maybe just speaks to the fact that we okay, we live in a bubble, yeah. probably. And, and on the coasts, And maybe it's just not getting through yeah. to the rest of the public. I guess I I'm
5: just interested to know, and I'm not sure if you have an answer here or thoughts, but it's really like where do we get that natural progression where right the middle of the country um, is feeling this too and the questions about knowing your farmer and knowing more about your food are just the given, right? You're learning about it in third grade, fourth grade. You're going home. You have homework assignments on it. Then you're talking to your parents about it. Um, I think that
4: you we're know probably I'd, I'd, I don't know that I'd make a distinction the typical coastal distinction versus middle of the country thing there are people doing things better and worse everywhere but yeah um, that's probably my reverse my tendency to reverse snobbery but um, <laughs> I think that some people are going to recognize things because they look at them and they think about them and some people are not and that's why I am in favor of regulations like soda tax or why I'm in favor of limiting the marketing of junk food to children because yeah. we have to teach people better as they're growing up yeah. what it means to eat real food um, and soda and the things that are like it which you know certainly include all sugar sweetened beverages but include a host of things in the sold in the supermarket and sold at fast food places that are nutritionally worthless or worse than nutritionally worthless um, we need regulations that say um, yeah, you can't stop grown-ups from eating what they want to <laughs> eat but you can stop children um, from eating what they want to eat and it's not just parental guidance it's also limiting the marketing and limiting the sales mm-hmm. um, of things that are, seem to be bad for us to kids who can't make reasoned decisions Yeah, yeah. and we all know that there isn't a person. I've said this, what I'm about to say, I've said a hundred times in the last year, if I've said it once, and no one's ever disagreed with me. Feel free. <laughs> but we all know that our habits, our desires, food wise, are formed when we're very, very young. And we all know that we crave the stuff that we learned to crave when we were kids. And if the stuff we learned to crave when we're kids is not good for us, then it means we're doomed to a life of conflict, a life where we, and everybody I know acts and feels this way, a life where we crave certain foods and we think, oh, I shouldn't have that. And that actually leads to conflict, internal conflict and unhappiness. I mean.
3: Yeah, because you don't want to feel like you're denying yourself something and we live in like a diet culture. You
4: know, when you're tired.
3: You you just want pizza.
4: (laughs) You might feel like, oh, I can't go to bed because that's an inconvenient time to go to bed. But yeah. for the most part, you think, oh, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. When you're hungry, um, you want to eat. That's fine. But what is it that you want to eat? Then you set up this conflict that actually makes you feel bad. And yeah. until we learn, until we teach our children what's right to eat and what's good to eat, they are going to grow up just as we grew up, which is craving foods that are not good for us. Mm-hmm. Um and and every year that we delay um, marketing junk to kids means another gener- another year's worth of generations growing up um, with the same conflict with mm-hmm. adults who have greater or lesser eating disorders. Um, yeah, I think it's really unfortunate.
3: So I, um, I maybe I'm going to be the first person to disagree with you on part, just on part of that. Um, so I think that we just we interviewed B. Wilson on her new book, um, First Bite, a few months ago, which was just a fascinating read. And the premise is basically that yes, you're right, a hundred percent, that your food preferences are shaped very, very young in life. Um, like actually, she uh, talked about this new research coming out that uh, food preferences are shaped even as early as four months, and so you should start feeding kind of um, you know solid food pureed, basically, um, at that time, in addition to breastfeeding. But I think that to your larger point, which is um, also, sorry, she says that you can change your food preferences later in life. It just takes, it's a very kind of almost arduous process, right, of introducing the same types of food over and over and over again, even in small quantities, to, to really hate help reshape your your palate um but uh, to your point in terms of um, what you crave i think that that's the big uh takeaway right do you if you're hungry do you really want to also eat a fresh salad in addition to what else like do you want to eat those foods um so i would say overall i agree but just wanted to just wanted to make that that quick put put in that plug (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break right now and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we are going to be talking a little bit more about, of course, the 2016 election and what this means for food system advocates. Stay tuned.
1: New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov.
5: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're talking with Mark Bittman.
3: Period. Full stop. <laughs> Just talking to Mark Bittman. Amazing.
5: So, sort of jumping off your last point, Mark, um, if we all reflect on the 2016 election... We um, have to talk about we it. We have to right, we're a week away from a Trump administration...
3: Otherwise, known as the apocalypse for us in our opinion.
5: <laughs> why do you think food um, and even for the most part conversations on the environment still remain untouched and left out of the conversation?
4: Well, it's a really tough question, and I spent a lot of energy in the last couple of years trying to totally. change that yep. um, and and there were some indications that the Clinton administration was going to take food a little more seriously than the Obama administration did, and certainly then the Trump administration will, but it still was not going to be as central as we would, we think it should be, speaking for you and me, even though Mm -hmm. we haven't discussed this. Um, So why isn't that? Well, part of it has to do with the fact that the first primary is in Iowa, and Iowa is, you know, ground zero for industrial food production. So um, that's that's a big issue um part of it is that i don't think um they've thought this thing through part of it is that there isn't a public clamor to take on the food system and then the question is why isn't there
6: Uh
4: a public clamor and this goes back to part of the discussion we had before but it also um i think it also speaks to the fact that for most americans something like sixty or eighty percent whatever number you wanna pick, there's not going to be a hard number on this but for the majority of americans the food system works for you and for you and me it works we get to eat whatever we want pretty much whenever we want it and if we have enough money we can get the highest quality food mm-hmm. yeah. Um available so it works for us it works for people who don't want to eat um, particularly well because uh they like many of them like the food that they're eating it can be it is affordable for most people and it is omnipresent and i think Uh that's important you don't have to think about food you can go um, almost no matter where you live in the united states at this point within a half an hour you can go buy almost any ingredient you want or find almost any cuisine you want so in the you know in the relatively small cities of the midwest if you feel like having Thai food or even Indonesian food, you can do that. Yeah. Um, if you feel like going to the supermarket and looking for exotic ingredients and cooking them, you can do that. And um, if you feel like going to the supermarket and buying a mango or an apple or uh, any other fruit or vegetable, you can name, completely 100% out of season, you can do that. So I think for for most people... The food is there the food they want is there it's here it's affordable um and it's not look it's it's a pretty safe system i mean people don't get sick in the sense of throwing up or being poisoned um all that often they may get sick from overeating junk but that's a long slow process that
3: people still don't want to recognize we're all
4: lousy about taking or most of us are lousy about taking good long-term care of our bodies so um, I, you know, I think I, I, here's something I say a lot. Uh, I've said a lot that no one agrees with, but I find it amusing. So I'm going to keep saying it, <laughs> which is that I think food um, to many people is like football. You know that it's not good. Um, <laughs> you know that it needs a lot of work if it's going to stick around. But you. In the case of football, you watch it on Sunday anyway, and in the case of food, you eat what's around anyway. Yeah. it's like easy and convenient, and for the most part...
3: People don't think fun. about it.
4: I mean, let's remember that most people have forgotten how to cook or never learned. Yeah. And so going out and eating fast food, going out and eating restaurant food, is the only way they know to get spicy, tasty, let's say zesty, to use an old-fashioned word, mm-hmm. food in their lives. Yeah. Um, Because so much institutional food is so terrible uh, that going out to, you know, Sonic or McDonald's or a pizza place where the food actually has flavor, whether you like it or not, it does. Yeah. um, You know, in some ways, a welcome relief. So, you know, you think of buffalo wings, I mean, compared to the food of 30 years ago that people were Going out and eating—it's really quite um, flavorful,
3: right? I mean, the word I want. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I totally agree with you about football. So,
4: (laughs) so good, thanks.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm. I'm. We're on the same page about that one. So basically, people don't need to think about it so much anymore because we have so many choices. We can for for most Americans, not certainly for like 50 million people who rely on on Snap, but we maybe as a society um i don't know don't don't care as much as we should uh about um people i think that that's the social fabric in this country is rapidly deteriorating that's a whole other conversation but yeah for a mm-hmm. lot of people like the food system i guess works as it is and they are not forced to think about um think about it all that much and certainly food is ubiquitous and Any kind of food is ubiquitous. Um, Okay, so I want to be cognizant of time, and I really want to get this this uh, two more questions in for you. And um, oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I thought I I cut you off. Okay, so here's here it is. Um, You're a food advocate. I'm a food advocate obviously. um, But we live in a, a very crazy time right now. And I'm wondering, like, given the overall threats that a Trump presidency will entail, can we as as food advocates, you know, no longer afford to be focusing on food system issues? Should we as kind of general advocates be narrowing our focus to something to like other quote unquote, bigger issues like the environment, like women's right to choose, I mean, things that we thought were settled decades ago. Do we need to consolidate our advocacy powers and energy to some of these other core topics as opposed to what some people might call uh, a niche topic?
4: Such a great question, and again, something that would take, you know, it's a long conversation, yeah. but it is something I've given a lot of thought to, and I think, um, the short answer is this. No, we should not stop thinking about food. But yes, we should be allied with people who think about all of the issues you rec- you just mentioned and more. And I think there's this notion that food is a nonpartisan issue, and certainly everybody eats. But, you know, that's like arguing that women's rights is a nonpartisan issue. Yeah. All women need rights. So, right, it's a nonpartisan issue. But some but. people are willing to pay attention and fight for these things, and some people are not. Yeah. And I think. If you're willing to fight for women's rights, if you're willing to fight uh, to counter climate change, if you're willing to fight for better food and for better environment and against racism and against poverty and for a better living for people and for national health care and on and on and on, then you're on the same side of this struggle and we should be fighting together. I don't think that that means that we give up talking about food it may mean that there are some issues that we have and I'm not going to go into this because I don't want to make enemies (laughs) but it may mean that there are some issues in the under the banner of food that are just not as important as others and we need to figure out what the most important issues are and look for our allies in all of those other movements who will agree with us on that say for example marketing of junk food to children but whatever it turns out to be and say look We'll show up at your marches. We'll go talk to your congressmen, et cetera, et cetera, with you. You come do that with us. We want to get antibiotics out of the food supply. You want to make abortion safe and legal. Mm-hmm. We're going to work together on both those things because then there's more of us. I think.
3: Both you know, of which are public health like issues, by the way. A
4: kid, but um, yeah. I think this is an opportunity. I'm not happy Donald Trump got elected, but um, I think it. It's going to focus things. It's going to make people uh, think a little bit less about small issues and a little bit more about big issues. And it's going to make people who are on the same side want to work together, or at least that's my hope.
3: I love that. And it's optimistic, and, um, and I agree, and I, and I hope we do that. Um, all right, we've got one more question
5: Taylor is going to ask you. All right, Mark, um, we wanted to end on a semi-fun one, and that was also a great optimistic note to end on, so thank you. Yeah, that you. was fun. Anyway, yeah.
4: go ahead. Um, <laughs> what
5: do you think is the most important article that consumers and readers need but you haven't written yet?
4: <laughs> the one that we just discussed, which yeah. um, great. <laughs> I'm on nice. the verge of writing. So <laughs> All right. Go. Well,
3: we look forward we, to we it. We scooped you.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you. You helped me scoop myself. It's fine.
3: <laughs> oh, all right. Awesome. Anything else, Taylor? Yeah. Thanks, Mark. This has been so much fun, and um, I really want to thank you for your time and for, for coming on.
4: It was fun for me too, and um, off off the record or whatever. Yeah. We can do it anytime you want, especially if you don't make me come to Brooklyn. And um,
5: <laughs> but there's pizza here. I know, well, <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. I know. There's pizza everywhere. Yeah, um, that's it. <laughs> And I really, you know, they were great questions. So it really was fun. We we can do it again if you want. I love that.
3: Okay. I'm going to keep that on the record and hold you to it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Mark. Okay. And that's our show for today. I want to thank Mark Bittman again so much for coming on the show. And a big thanks to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help from Taylor Lanzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you also to our engineer, David Tadashore, who is the best. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening.